save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, this is Ellie Weiss, and welcome to Our Wild World. My guest today, Dr. Lori Marker, founder and force behind Cheetah Conservation Fund, is a rare breed indeed. From a free-thinking pioneer in the Oregon wine industry, to original groundbreaking research on cheetah in both captivity and more markedly in the wild. In 1991, Dr. Marker threw caution to the wind, packed up her worldly belongings, and moved to Namibia, driven by a singular cause, to save the cheetah from extinction. I've known of CCF since its inception, but like nomads passing in the desert, Lori and I never managed to meet up until early this year, when I and other locals co-hosted a presentation at our community environmental center, and she stayed at my home. Once away from the crowd and relaxing, we started talking, and it was hard to stop. So now, I have the distinct pleasure of having Lori as our guest today, and we're talking cheetah. Welcome, Lori. Hi, great to talk to you. It's great. I mean, I've missed missed you. You've, you're such a busy woman. It's it's hard to um, pin you down uh, for 55 minutes so that we can just have a chat. So um, why don't we begin with a little background about how you went from a pioneer in wine to a wildlife park in Oregon to Namibia and then a decade of travel and research across sub-Saharan Africa to land you in a lifelong love affair with cheetahs. Wow. Well, that's in a quick nutshell. <laughs> well, that's just that's just the lead and now we get to hear the good stuff. Yeah, I have it's been a long time working with cheetahs and I think going cheetah speed is what we always say. So Oh, I like that. So, so much to do and um, so little time, but uh, yeah, I started working with cheetahs back in the early 1970s. I was in Oregon and had just moved there to um, start up the Oregon wine industry. I was a vintner and um, grape grower, uh, vineyard, and had a vineyard right near a newly opened park called the Wildlife Safari in Winston, Oregon, which is still there. So anybody who is in Oregon, go to it. It's a 600-acre drive-through wildlife park. And we were one of the few places in the world that had cheetahs. And I was fascinated with them. I just thought they were so amazing. I ended up there because um, I, as an entrepreneur, needed a job. And my background had been um, with animals. I grew up on the back of a horse. I was in uh, 4-H, Pony Club, Future Farmers of America, and had my own dairy goat ranch that I also brought up to Oregon. And so my background, you know, I was thought I was going to be a veterinarian. And instead, these paths just move you in different areas. So my first degree was in agriculture. And being at the Wildlife Safari, I, I just wanted to know everything about the cheetah because it was there. I ran the veterinary clinic and nursery. And all of the very special animals came under my care. And I started writing to people around the world you know back then you had to use letters and stamps which is you know revolutionized these days with internet but um, 
I wrote to everybody in the world and people would write back um, and they'd say, oh, nobody knows that much about cheetahs. They have a very short lifespan in captivity. They don't breed well in captivity. We're losing them in the wild. But when you learn more about cheetahs, do let us know. Um, And I thought, well, God, that's amazing. People have had cheetahs for 5,000 years. They've been revered by kings, emperors, and princes. What is going on? Why people don't know anything about them? And it is because... People thought that they could bring them from the wild, and yet they were not an animal that likes being that much in captivity, and were not breeding very well any place. So at the Wildlife Safari, we did have a breeding program. Um, We had cheetahs that had come in from Namibia, Southwest Africa, and the last batch of animals um, that were exported from Africa Right before CITES, which is the Convention on International Trade for Endangered Species, went into effect in the early 1970s to stop people taking animals from the wild. Well, that's where zoos then started having to cooperate. They didn't quite know that yet. But um, we had a litter of cubs born, and it was the 17th litter of cubs ever to be born in captivity uh, at the Wildlife Safari, and that just launched me into wanting to know everything I could know about the cheetah, and then tried to share with people around the world, and then from that, developed international programs. I run what's called now the International Cheetah Stud Book, which is a registry of all the cheetahs in captivity, as well as working with uh, facilities around the world to help them learn more about the cheetah so that the cheetah could also have a place in captivity, which means managing its bloodline. But that just got me excited and going. However, I ended up in Namibia in the middle 1970s, and that was a pretty interesting um, project because I had an opportunity to find out if a captive-born cheetah could go back out into the wild and what it would take, what's going on in the wild. And so it was like, you know, Coles to Newcastle. I took a cheetah that I hand-raised. Her name was Kayam, a very, very, very special cheetah. And I took her to Namibia, where her parents had come from, Um, a few years earlier and um, sat out to find out how a how you rewild a cheetah you know what how do they learn how to hunt and so since I'd raised Kayam I actually also learned how to hunt so I was successful in teaching her to hunt but of course I could not leave her there Uh, that's not what the project was about but what I found was that farmers were killing cheetahs like flies. They thought they were vermin. And now to the world, people didn't know that back in the early 70s. You know, we all thought animals were beautiful and, you know, there was a lot of born-free love out there and, um, you know, thinking that animals could just go off out into the wild, not realizing that the wild was actually changing. And the cheetah is an animal that lives primarily outside of protected areas. So here it was on these commercial farmlands in the middle of Namibia, which at that point was a war-torn country, and um, because the country was fighting to get its independence, and these people saw the cheetah as vermin, and they were killing eight, nine hundred of them a year, and they thought I was nuts, because I wanted to find out how people could live together with the cheetah. And that sort of launched me off on, I guess I would say, 
um, the last, you know, 45 years of life to find out how we can live together with the cheetah, help our communities, and save the species for future generations. You know, I I, I remember so much of what you're talking about and, you know, cheetah in captivity and following the stories that they were very difficult to breed. And what you're saying here is how little we knew about specific species and their habits in the wild, how they used their landscape from the eyes of a cheetah. We kept wanting to manage this and put two cheetahs together and say, oh yeah, they'll, they'll mate, you know, there's no problem. And then we start realizing, and this is the groundbreaking work you brought to the world with your research and data that, you know, they're, they're picky. They have needs and requirements and it's not just, you know, like Tinder for cheetah. You have to, they have to like each other and they're also very solitary animals and they're also the smallest of the big cat in Africa. So let's put this in a little more perspective. Today, how dire is the cheetah's plight? Well, today, unfortunately, the world population is less than 7,500 individuals. And that is adults and adolescents and only found in about 23 countries and about 30 populations, of which about two-thirds of those populations are less than 100 individuals. So the numbers are very low. And this the, is in the wild, the n- numbers you're talking wild. about in the okay. Right. Um, in captivity, there's about 1,500 animals living in about 250 zoos around the world, uh, which are all carefully managed, and we only still have about 100 and 50 cheetah cubs born each year in captivity with a very high infant mortality rate, about 25%. So cheetahs still, after all these years, are not breeding very well in captivity, but we've learned how they live in the wild and have helped our colleagues in zoos understand more about how they should care for them. So the cheetah is an animal that is, you know, needs wide open spaces. They have huge home ranges. Our groundbreaking research showed that cheetahs in Namibia have the largest home ranges of any place in the world. About 800 square miles for males. Um, uh, For females, they can go up to about 1,000 square miles. Uh, And so females are actually covering multiple males' ranges, unlike uh, what most carnivores, we think of males having large ranges, covering multiple females. But as you have said, cheetahs are very special. They, females have mate choice. They will go around very huge areas over a course of a couple years, teaching the cubs, you know, where everybody's living, where water is, where the best wildlife is. And that's where covering multiple males' home ranges. And then the female will select mate choice. And then it's also interesting that the female cubs will stay within the mother's home range. So as um, the cubs grow up, the brothers stay together their whole lives, they get pretty much pushed out of the area where the female cubs are by dominant males, which come in, which again stops inbreeding. Uh, But the young um, males are dispersed and they're out for probably a couple years in huge areas. They can go up to, you know, two to, well, two to 3,000 square miles in their movements until they find a place where they can settle. Now, obviously, covering that amount of land, there's also a lot of threats to them. Right, um, right. Especially covering the farmlands because 90% of all the cheetahs 
live outside of protected areas through their range. So most people think that protected areas are, you know, everything's going to be fine in a protected area. The cheetah has made us think totally outside of the box. And so, yes, I am a very outside of the box thinker, having to figure out how to um, work with people, communities. And when I started in Namibia, I, I actually packed my bags in 1991 and and moved to Namibia and just gotten its independence. And it's been pretty exciting because I've been there um, through all of these years, now almost 30 years, in helping the new country of Namibia grow and develop. And so it's been wonderful to be a part of the conservation team there. I think Namibia's got some of the best conservation, um, African conservation uh, management of any country, not just in Africa, but actually worldwide because of our our great government that has worked very, very hard at seeing wildlife and the environment in uh, in a way that it supports um, the people, the communities. Well, I've often said conservation is about people. I mean, if it weren't for us, wildlife would be able to go where it wanted and have the entire continent to roam on. And as you've just said, similar to elephant, cheetah are you know, huge roamers. They need space. And the problem is we humans are taking up that space. So this is a huge problem of magnitude. How? Let's, let's give a little um, idea and we'll go into it further as we progress through the program of CCF's approach to a problem of this magnitude? Well, our approach has been very multidisciplined. And so as a research, uh, applied research conservation organization, we've collected research on how cheetahs live. We've looked at people's needs. And so that's one of the baseline issues that we've continued to deal with is to try to talk to people and what is their problem, what are their needs. And then from there, by understanding the cheetah's ecology and biology, it allows us to actually um, mesh the two together and come up with what we call conservation management plans. Um, so a lot of our issues have looked at non-lethal uh, predator management. We use things like livestock guarding dogs, which we can talk more about. Um, they're Kangal and Anatolian shepherds, wonderful breed from Turkey that we breed and give with farmers. We teach farmers about how their livestock management actually relates to having problem predators because quite often people have their animals just living out and not realizing that they need to take care of them. It's like putting your money in a bank and having the safe open and having everybody decide they can go take any money they want. Well, predators are very similar. They're opportunistic. And what they want is a um, an easy meal because if anything happens to them, um, they can get hurt and then they won't be able to hunt. And so we've learned a lot about the livestock farming techniques for both commercial and communal rural farmers throughout Africa and have tried to develop programs so that they are not losing livestock. So with that, you then can grow on the habitat and understand more about the prey and teach people more about how the cheetah and other predators are living on the land and how people can actually not just fight nature all the time, but if they learn more about how animals live, they can then be a part of the the solutions versus just being a problem. So you really do take a very holistic 
approach. And this is what conservation needs today, rather than going down so many specific rabbit holes. Yes, we do need the research and the understanding of specific species. But if we don't understand how that fits into the total landscape, which includes the people and the needs of people, then it's very difficult to go about a species survival plan. So um, you had mentioned a very uh, exciting point, uh, the Anatolian dog. So why don't we step away for a little break now and we're going to come back and uh, talk about the dogs. It's a a program project that you uh, initiated and it's very exciting. So folks, stick with us. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back. I'm Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World and my fascinating guest, Dr. Lori Marker, founder of Cheetah Conservation Fund. So as you've been listening along, we we got a great background of Lori and uh, how she sort of fell into cheetah conservation um, and the skill set to do so. Uh, when we were talking that about the cheetah, 
on the continent of Africa and the conflicts that we're facing today with people, what was the cheetah's original range? Did, were they throughout Africa? I know we used to have a North American cheetah that went extinct millennia ago. Right. No, they had a, a, a five-continent distribution up until about 20,000 years ago, at which point, actually, the cheetah went through a population bottleneck around the Pleistocene extinction, and they escaped the Pleistocene extinction. So they are an important um, species to just, you know, an adaptation that allowed them to. But it brought the numbers down very low, so low that as they repopulated the continents, um, the numbers, you know, could have even come back from a mother and son that bred and brought the population back. They are, you know, genetically compromised. And that was a lot of our early research that we looked at what was going on with the cheetah back in the early 80s when we discovered the lack of genetic diversity and has been one of the baseline underlying um, ecological and environmental factors that, you know, again, could push them to the brink because they don't have that genetic diversity. So how, they, how do you address that? I mean, are cheetah that were brought in from the wild before CITES and in all these zoos, are they still linked genetically to the wild population how do you bring in genetic diversity well they're all the same and you can't we're not going to be able to change but what we can do is stop reducing so every time we an animal dies we're reducing the um the genetic you know dominoes i don't know the way you you know when you're born you've got a mixture of your mother's and your father's genes and all these cheetahs are all very similar so it's all kind of like a a crapshoot i guess um, but every time we reduce the numbers of animals by people killing them and they're not you know, doing well, we're losing you know, genes that are very critical. So is this uh, where your stud book comes into play so that if you're going to do managed breeding in captivity for release into the wild, you can sort of figure out the date book of who should be with who? Yes. And then we're overlapping that with genetics. So in Namibia, I mean, a lot of our background is from the early genetics, from the 80s, and have continued that all along. We have what's called a genome resource bank. So every animal that we've had our hands on, and we've worked on over a 1,000 cheetahs in Namibia at this point, most of which have been able to go back out into the wild. But we take blood and tissues, and we bank that down. We bank the semen from male cheetahs in liquid nitrogen and everything that we do is that baseline understanding of the health and the relatedness. We do, as I said, have a full-time, very extensive genetics lab at our center in Namibia where we train a lot of Namibian students, we train other students from throughout Africa and colleagues that are working on cheetahs throughout their ranges as well. So we've really developed an amazing um, genetic leg of the work we do and we also work on and use um, scat detection dogs so we use detection dogs that can go out into the bush and find poop samples we call cheetah poop black gold (laughs) and that is a way that we can then um, extract DNA and it helps us with our sensing. we just had a team up in Angola where we've got a collaboration going on up there I don't know, about 10 years ago, I was able to discover 
cheetahs remaining in Angola. And so we've got colleagues that we're working with there. Um, the illegal wildlife trafficking, we're bringing in samples to our genetics lab to be able to understand where these animals are coming from. But so interestingly, the cheetah is so genetically similar um, that, and we use things like um, uh, microsatellites, and that allows us to understand individual animals and it, we're allowed to get um, some very good data on understanding where the population is now but going backwards the cheetah was throughout all of Africa in about 44 countries it had distribution throughout Europe into India and Asia and the Middle East and the rapid decline is just over the past hundred years we've lost about 90% of all of the cheetahs in the last 100 years. Um, the last of the cheetahs in India were in the middle 50s, in, um, in the Middle East in the 70s, in Russia in the 80s, in um, the last of the Asian cheetahs are in Iran where there are only about 50 individuals there. So this, la this population loss is all around people. Um, people taking them from the wild in, in India, wanting them to be hunting companions or pets, which is a huge problem facing them even today because there's a huge illegal now wildlife trade of cheetahs going from um, northern Kenya, Ethiopia, Somalia, Somaliland, over to Yemen and up into the Middle East where people want to keep these animals as pets and they are not pets and the, the loss of um, about 300 cheetahs a year going through this illegal trafficking route is horrible um, so and the problems up in North Africa I mean there's cheetahs in Algeria maybe about 200 there's cheetahs in Niger and Benin but maybe only a hundred um, in Burkina Faso in a tri-country park there um, the numbers are very small in many of these areas because of loss of prey. The wildlife numbers are as endangered as the cheetahs are up in the north and northwest parts of Africa. The Dorcas gazelles and the um, Dama gazelles are, are critically endangered, and those would be the prey base for the cheetah. So again, the habitat and the prey become key factors when we're looking at where cheetahs live, how they live, and and what they need to live for the future. And that's where, again, we have to work so hard at understanding all of those different aspects to understand how we're going to save the cheetah. This is fascinating. This is absolutely fascinating. So let's back up a minute. At the we, You'd introduced the concept of the Anatolian dogs, the uh, livestock guarding dogs. Tell us how that works. What, well, do the, what, what the dogs do, I mean, you have a whole breeding program and then how CCF distributes the dogs, who gets a dog, and then how these dogs are raised, because they're not raised as pets either. No, they're not. These dogs are a large breed of dog that have been used in Turkey um, for about 5,000 years to protect the flocks from wolves. And through Turkey, there is a lot of migration with their livestock. In Europe, in the old world, there were, um, there I think are about 20 different breeds of livestock guarding dogs, and each one of the dogs acts differently. Some of them um, in Europe don't, they are kind of more backyard farm dogs, so they don't do these mass migrations. Many of them have long hair, which doesn't do all that well in Africa. So we 
selected the Anatolian Shepherd, or also called the Kangal Dog, from Turkey because of the way it lives. Vast open spaces. It's an independent thinker. It does not need a person to tell them what to do. As a matter of fact, the dogs look at you like you're from Mars when you you know, ask them to do things because they think that they know what to do best. When rightly so, after 5,000 years, you know, people go to bed and leave the dog out at night to protect their livestock. Most livestock losses are in the late evenings, overnight, or in the early mornings. And I always call this timeshare. Wildlife knows when people are available and up and around. And, um, and if your animals at night are not attended to, they then are and can fall prey to many of the different predators, not just cheetahs, but leopards and jackals and caracal in Africa. Um, so we've selected that breed of dog because of the way it, it lives. Um, and it has a very long history um, up in the um, Turkish Anatolian Plateau. It's also extremely um, hot, a very varied, you know, hot to cold. And so these dogs are adaptable to um, to a different fluctuating temperature. In Namibia, everyone thinks, oh, Africa, it's really hot. We have a winter cold season that gets down to freezing. We're in a high desert. And many of the areas where cheetahs are found throughout Africa are high deserted areas. Um, and so there is this fluctuation of their of the the Anatolian shepherd's you know coat and climate that it can adapt and do well out in these areas. So we use the breed of dog. What happens is the dogs grow up with the livestock. So no, they're not a pet. They are, are our dogs are born out in our goat yard. We do have a model farm, so we do raise cattle, goats, and sheep, so that we can show farmers good management practices. Um, and how they can live together with predators, cheetahs, and all the other array of predators. But what the dogs do is they grow up with the flock. When they're born in the goat yard, they're they're born and grow up with the goats. When they're at about 10 weeks of age, and we have at that point vaccinated them and neutered them, we spay and neuter the dogs, and then give them to the selected farmer. The farmer goes through a application process. We go out and check their ranch or their farm. Farmers, when I speak, are livestock farmers. We don't um, grow any crops because it's too dry in Namibia. But um, we go and look at their, the farm area with the, the livestock farmer. And then when the dogs are 10 weeks of age, they are put in place with their new herd. And they grow up with their flock, and they act as a guardian. Um, when they're at about um, a year and a half of age, they have um, are, are a good-sized dog, and they are quite smart. They mature at about uh, 18 months of age, and what they really do is they act as a um, for avoidance. They bark very loudly. They're very intimidating with the sound of their voice. They know everything. So even if they are laying, their ears are wide open and hear everything. Um, they mark territories when they're out with their flocks so the predators know where they are, what they go, where they go. They know the sound. And again, this what I call time share is that the, it, the dogs allow the predators to know that when they're back in their corral, that the, the predators can then roam the night. 
And um, if they get too close to the flock, though, the dogs will bark very loudly. And indeed, if there's something wrong with a predator and they think that they want to catch one of the flock, that the dogs will actually fight till the death if they have to. Usually, the predator wants to stay away unless there's something wrong with the predator. And that would be maybe it's too young or it's injured or it's sick. Uh, But most healthy predators want to stay away. And if there is a prey base, then they would just prefer to have a wild prey base than they would to have our livestock. And that's what I think farmers need to understand. There are techniques to live together. I think a lot of people need to understand this, that, you know, most carnivores and most predators do not want to engage in conflict. You know, when you've got a 50-50 chance of coming out of any encounter of being killed, you usually want to come out of this scenario alive. So rarely do predators fight to the death unless it's, you know, um, a male, a, a dominant male and a territory infringement. So these dogs sound absolutely fascinating and it's amazing that wildlife will listen to these dogs and and I love what you say that they're independent thinkers and how this is such a symbiotic relationship. So um, you say the puppies are raised with the farmers out there. So are they friendly to people or they, they don't really want to deal with people and they just consider themselves the livestock guardians? Right. And um, we, we try to socialize our dogs. So we try to get the farmers or the herders to know that, you know, the dog should learn how to walk on a leash and should be a bit um, obedient, if you call it. It should know its name. But it's not an animal that's going to sleep at your bed. It's got to sleep out in the herd's at night. As far as friendly, um, that's why it's important to socialize them. The dogs, we've been doing this program since 1994. So we've had, we've bred and placed over 650 dogs in that period of time. This year we'll probably have about 50 puppies and place them with 50 farmers. Um, And our program just keeps growing. But as far as being friendly, Oftentimes, people will say, you know, don't, you know, you can pet the goat, but don't touch the dog. <laughs> the dog is discerning. It doesn't, it doesn't want to be touched and petted by you, necessarily. Sometimes they are happy to come over and get a pet and then walk away. So, again, they're very independent. They're not needy animals. They are not an animal that makes a good pet, so you don't want this animal in your backyard. They are used to covering, you know, 20 miles a day in in their you know flock protection so so um, one second so when the farmers put them in the crawl at night and the dogs are in there and then during the day the animals are let out to forage and the dogs stay with them throughout this oh wow okay yeah but they're not like a herding dog you know like a border collie you can they'll go out and round things up and bring them in these are guarding dogs. They go and they go wherever the flock goes, and they protect the flock. Um, the flock knows to come back usually, and so the dogs will follow. But a herding dog is different. So a lot of people think that, oh, any dog will work. But a herding dog, if it sees a predator, its instinct is to run and move the flock away. As soon as the flock starts running, they that's what a predator wants, is they want their prey to go into the, you know, Panic zone. Run. Right, so they can go through their stalk, run, trip, kill 
uh, process. So that's why herding dogs and guarding dogs are different. The guarding dog barks, the flock stands behind it, and the dog basically says, I'm really big, and if you really want my flock, come on. And a predator will then hear that, see them, and pretty much go away. Wow. This is absolutely fascinating. So um, we've got like a Actually, we need to step away for a break. This was a fascinating section. So we're going to step away and then we're going to talk about so many other programs that CCF has come up with. This is a broad range organization that goes about finding solutions to just about every aspect of what is needed in conservation. So stick with us and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back with my fascinating guest, Dr. Lori Marker, uh, founder of Cheetah Conservation Fund. So by now you've probably got an inkling of how broad scope and vision of 
Dr. Marker herself, and what Cheetah Conservation Fund does. There are a lot of organizations out there that are working to protect and save cheetah, and they're either sanctuaries or you see a lot of videos of people with their cheetah. And we all love to see people, and we want to touch these animals. But the point of saving them in the wild is to leave them be. It's not about us touching them. It's about us protecting their habitat and getting people to coexist with them while also raising livestock, which often looks like food. So um, CCF has a wide variety of projects. It, it really is a groundbreaking organization in how it holistically approaches species survival and conservation from the ground up. You have a program called Future Farmers of Africa. Tell us how that works. Well, so much in, you know, talking with the people and going out and finding out, you know, where, how they farm and, you know, why they have problems and, you know, what kind of losses they have to predators. It started dawning on me that the people that I'm dealing with really had never had any education or knowledge on how to raise their livestock. I mean, I grew up in, uh, you know, in a backyard farm. I was a future farmer of America and a 4-H'er. And what I learned from when I was young to what I learned going through, you know, university was all what my background is. You know, I'm a, I know how to take care of animals. I'm an animal person. I'm from livestock to, you know, you know, very special veterinary care for exotic animals. However, the rural farmers really didn't know anything. They don't know the difference between a parasite and a virus and a, a vaccine versus some an oral pill that you give. How you trim hooves. I mean, all of it you think is common sense if you're out there and you've got livestock. However, just to paint the picture about what so many of the rural livestock farmers look like is they're, you know, basically in the middle of the bush in nowhere with a, you know, a dirt all around and a handful of livestock with maybe a fence or no fence no electricity, no running water, and here they are then trying to figure out how to take good health care of their animals. So I thought that, you know, and asking questions, and people kept saying, we want more knowledge to really develop a program that helps them learn to live together and take care of their livestock. Education so is ed- education is critical. I mean, you said we take it for granted because we grow up in a system of being educated, school, 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 college, university, and, you know, a career. But what you're talking about and what we who work in Africa <laughs> come to understand very quickly is the rural communities a, don't have access to that type of education. B, they're following in their family's footsteps, so to speak. They've always been small stock herders, and they're trying to make a living. Um, and it's, it's, it's subsistence farming or agriculture to a point. So providing this basic knowledge of livestock husbandry is is is. We think it's common sense, but it actually is a light bulb moment. And it's great how you came about to understand that, which is so, so very much needed. It's just critical. I mean, again, and, and I think there's just such a difference of people, you know, living in the Western world and not, you know, not having, if people go on safari, you know, you can see certain things, but you don't really get the depth of it. But when you're living and, you know, in 
Africa, you know, you've spent years and years in and out as well, is that you see the people in a different light and then start asking questions. And the people will tell you what it is that they need and want. And so our training programs really cover what the needs are for the people. But we have um, we have educators that are constantly out in the communities. We've got um, training programs, which could be a week long. They could be one or two days long. It is all really revolves around what the different communities and what the different people want. A couple of years ago, we did an, a, a program in eight villages that was every month we did a day program. So they ended up with a year's worth of knowledge, and that revolved around the different seasons and what the issues were at that point, what kind of vaccines should be given for which diseases, um, how to how to manage your, your rangeland when you don't really have your own land. Most of the people that we're working with are communal farmers or subsistence, but a communal land means that anybody can go anywhere. So it's not like you're save a piece of grass for next month, but anybody can come through and their livestock will eat that. So understanding management systems and the health of their livestock has become very huge. We were looking at, you know, for calving seasons, like, you know, 35% only of um, the lambs that would be born because they had no idea the proper nutrition or care of the mother before giving birth or if the animal's not healthy, then the animal wasn't going to even be able to give birth very well. They didn't know even how to pull out a calf giving birth. So those kinds of issues. of and, and trimming hooves. If your animal's hooves are too long and it's limping, you know, the predator is going to go after the weak and the sick. And the animal that's at the end of your herd wandering off because it can't keep up is going to be the one that's going to get picked off by by any predator, not just the cheetah, but there's jackals, there's caracal. So there are an array of different predators as well. And then understanding how, you know, how much grazing you need for an animal. Um, we, we call those livestock units that um, it's like one livestock unit to about 15 to 20 um, hectares. So um, that is... You know, that's about, you know, 10 and a half acres per one animal. So if you can understand the aridness and how much land people need to actually have a number of animals. And yet many of the people, just because it's part of their culture, might have 50 or 100 animals, which then during a drought would die because they don't know how to take care of them. So that's their money in their bank that they don't know how to bank. So a lot of the training programs really have revolved around trying to help the communities manage their livestock to their benefit, to the benefit of the ecosystem, as well as the benefit of not losing their livestock to predators. And so they don't have to go out and kill predators like cheetahs. And you know, we're in, in the area that we work in, which is called the Greater Waterberg Landscape, or also the old Herero Land in the eastern communal lands of Namibia, um, is also where the last um, remaining Namibian population of African wild dogs are. And these are, you know, Africa's painted dogs. They're an amazing species, also critically endangered, with only about 4,500 left in the world. And our farmers in this area are also killing the wild dogs because they have no idea how to live with them. So training farmers, giving them education, giving them 
you know, books and the needs that they have. We're, we're working with them now on a rabies campaign. We've been given um, support from a um, research foundation who's looking at the effects of rabies to try to stop rabies, vaccination programs. So it's really an important part of, of what we do. Being well, every, on the everything you're describing is such a win-win situation. You know, it, it ends up everybody, you know, coming together when it works. So it, it lit up a question in my mind. We're um, losing less, less livestock. We're educating uh, the, the communal farmers, livestock breeders, and we're not losing as many cheetah. So if we've got, does this lead to a situation of more livestock roaming the land to end up creating a bit more conflict with the remaining cheetah that are there and putting less land available for cheetah to roam? That's good. Um, And the point on it is that if we can help them learn that they can have healthier livestock and less of it, the impact on the land is going to be much better. So what we want and are looking at is healthier numbers and reduced numbers of healthy livestock. From that, then we're also working on rangeland management. So uh, what's happened throughout much of Africa is with these ranging herds of livestock that are not necessarily managed, but in a communal way, just out roaming. Um, there's become a lot of overgrazing of these arid lands. And as I mentioned, the cheetahs found mostly in arid landscapes. And you know what that means is there's not a lot of rain. So if there's not a lot of rain, you're not going to get a lot of grass. But whatever grass is there, and if the cattle and goats go through and eat it all, there's not going to be a lot for wildlife. So this leads into a really important point of what you guys are doing, a fascinating project that when we met, I really wanted to learn a lot more about. And we've got some uh, about five, six minutes left to talk about this. So when you lose, when you don't get a lot of rain and you lose the grass, which also holds the soil in place, that allows a lot of the scrub thorn, this bushy stuff to grow, which then again reduces space for livestock and wildlife to to move through because there's not a lot of elephants breaking up this landscape to create open spaces. So you came up with a fascinating solution to this um, bush block. Tell us about this. It's I, I just love this. Well, yes. With the, and the bushes are you know these thorn bushes, which anybody who's been to Africa knows thorn bushes, but not realizing how kind of destructive they can be when they have taken over. And the takeover is because of the overgrazing of the land. And as the thorn bushes take over, they have very deep roots. So for a tree that might be um, five feet tall, its roots are going to go down into the ground about 35 feet or more and spread out around the entire canopy of the bush. So it's a form of desertification as well. So here the lands are already arid and dry, and then there, these trees are drinking each about you know 10 liters or more of um, water per day, pulling it out of the ground. And so the grasses are, are even more reduced because of the impact of the livestock 
on the land. So what we've been trying to do is to look at a habitat restoration program. So we started looking at how could we harvest this thorn bush, which is in some areas of Namibia and many of the other cheetah range countries, so thick that you cannot even penetrate it. And then the wildlife can't even get in. Um, so what we've started to do is to harvest the bush, we chip it, and then from that we developed a, pro, a, a product which is called bush block, which is an um, eco-log which burns with very high heat and very low emissions. So it goes through an extruder with a very high pressure and it kind of melts the thorn bush chips that um, we have harvested and chipped and into a this fuel log that um, is, you know, one log can burn for like an hour and a half with very low emissions. Um, but that has led us to other aspects to try to find out how much land you can harvest. And we harvest at what is called a 70% harvest. We are Forest Stewardship Council certified, which is the highest level of certification for a, um, a wood product. And so we manage our land in a way that is certified, um, and so our products can be certified. And that means that we are dealing with an ecological side, the biodiversity side, the human side of how we are training and working with our employees and how much we care and, and pay for them. So it is a different aspect than that of what charcoal is, which charcoals become a scourge of Africa. And the people who are doing charcoal are still living in a, a subsistence lifestyle. What we've done with the harvesting technique and the bush block is we are now also looking at the level of um, electricity potential. So as a biomass fuel, we have found that we could, we're looking for a biomass um, gasifier, that this, the chips could go into a gasification process and provide electricity. And most of the people in Africa, outside of towns um, and cities, which is about 75% of most of the African um, communities, have no electricity. So that's hundreds of thousands, millions of people without electricity. So this could scale up where we could open up habitat, put people to work, and um, also make electricity at the same time, allowing the more open land to have more wildlife, which we also practice and teach wildlife management, and then um, reduce human wildlife conflict with cheetahs, and there can be more cheetahs as well. So it's another aspect of getting the habitat right, the prey right, and allowing the cheetah to be at the top of this to be able to grow. This is, this is fascinating. I mean, you're an amazing woman in that you truly are an out-of-the-box thinker. And rather than, you know, sit back and say, oh, this is a problem I can't handle, you really go for the gusto in um, – looking at every aspect of the landscape that you're working in to protect the cheetah with a deep understanding that it's going to be about the Namibian people and or whatever country and whatever species of wildlife that we have to find ways. Um, it, it's talked about so much that people have to benefit, but that benefit doesn't always need to translate as a dollar bill or a currency into a pocket, that there are other 
let's call them ecosystem services that reduce these conflicts and provide uh, a financial benefit in a way that it reduces other needs. Right. And again, then looking at how to do that. And this has been a project we've worked on for the last 15 years. And it is, we're so proud of how, you know, we've awakened people to realize that a problem can be a solution. Um, How we go about doing that has to be very carefully, you know, researched. And so we've understood the amount of tonnage out of a hectare of land, which is about 10 tons per hectare. Um, and how you know many people and how they do it and how it's done in a biodiversity friendly way and then our community people that are working for us are very much benefiting by having a better job and feel like they're a part of also the conservation aspect so it's been a very big win-win and also but looking at how to scale it up so these kind of rural development programs from a um, conservation organization you know are our jobs and training is really in understanding aspects of, you know, conservation biology and now laying over that kind of an economic development aspect um, are, are again, the fascinating aspects of growth that conservation organizations are having to lead and, and, um, and take on. This is fascinating because I often say, you know, conservation has be- the word has become so ubiquitous that it's lost its meaning. And what's so wonderful about having people like you as my guest to talk to our listeners around the world is that we can bring back the definition of what it means to be a conservationist and what conservation is. It is about all aspects of people living landscapes and wildlife and restoring, um, I try to avoid using the word harmonious uh, coexistence because it's not necessarily about harmony, but it is about creating a landscape that functions for everybody. So listeners, please donate to Cheetah Conservation Fund. Look up their website. Look up their Facebook page. You can learn so much. There's so many videos to see, and there's fascinating work, and you get to see a lot of the cheetah that are there. So, Lori, if you had to sum it up in one sentence of what the solution to cheetah conservation crisis is, what would you say? Well, I guess I'd say save the cheetah, change the world, and that's our job. And I'd say that is the best thing for all of us to understand. If we want to be a part of a living future, complete with wildlife, this amazing, beautiful, fascinating species, the cheetah, then we have to participate. We're the ones that have to change what we're doing, and we can change the world and save the cheetah. Lori, I'm sorry we're out of time today. This was fascinating. I'd love to talk to you more, but for now, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, and do go to our website, cheetah.org. Absolutely. So thank you for your time. And meanwhile, folks, go out and check out your wild world and go visit Cheetah Conservation Fund, ccf.org. And we'll see you again next week. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. We'll be right back.